you have a Bible, will you turn with me to Acts chapter 20? We're going to begin reading at verse 17 and read through the whole passage. I'm going to spend the next two Sundays in this passage. And of course, if you're familiar with it, you know why. It's the first passage I've gone to, thought about as we prepare to leave. And the last of the passage is Paul kneeling and praying with his fellow elders who he trained in the city of Ephesus. And they, and they weep together as, as Paul leaves. Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with the trials that had that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend to you, to God, and to the world, word of his grace is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him. 
being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of God will stand forever. Let's pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you alone are our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For the past seven or so days, we have been, as I said before, vagabonds on the road. We moved out of our house and we are staying with uh, the Van Egmans up in Escondido between a couple of campers. The one thing that I, I anticipated being some of an issue, not anticipating being as much of an issue, is the question of where the dog stays and how much that determines where we stay. One in, I'd say, 10 places that are available on Airbnb or one in 10 hotels doesn't welcome pets. We've never traveled really with our pet except to camp once in a while. Being in San Diego for this much time, we have observed keenly the the love that San Diegans have for their dogs. Dogs are elevated to a place of of almost godlike status to the point where people care more for their dogs oftentimes than they do for their own children or even for the children of others. We have some personal experience with this as well. For us, dogs are this other thing. Now, as a family, we're definitely dog people, not cat people. But we're not so much dog people that we we aren't willing to have the dog sleep in the laundry room. And be it primarily an outdoor dog, though as our dog ages and our dog is with us right now, we've gotten soft in our old age. But in Jesus' time, in the time that the Apostle Paul is speaking, when he speaks about wolves, of course, wild dogs, and even even the dogs that were around there, it was a very different kind of thing. Some people use dogs for shepherding, herding. Other people use dogs for guard dogs, but rarely were dogs beloved pets that just stayed in the home and were well manicured and, and taken care of. Dogs were thought of as threats to animals. You notice in this passage that Paul is concerned to talk about sheep and shepherds and the danger of the wolves and the responsibility that shepherds have to protect the sheep from the wolves. Now the sheep are of course the people of God that Paul had poured into in the city of Ephesus for three years he spent time there in the city. He was so close to them that he on this journey is on his way to the city of Jerusalem. He's not even willing to go into the city. He calls to the elders in Ephesus to come meet him at the city of Miletus so that he won't be consumed, caught up in everything there and will be able to continue his trip to Ephesus. But he's concerned... He's concerned first and foremost for the good and the preservation of those sheep, the people that God has called in the city of Ephesus and knows the dangers that they will face when the wolves who are false teachers 
and the wolves who come pretending to be leaders in Jesus' church for the primary motive of selfish ambition or, or, or greedful gain. They are bound to come in and try to take from the people. And the, the danger is that they will bite and devour and chew up the flesh of the sheep. And Paul has one particular antidote to that problem. And that is elders in the church who are equipped with the truth of the gospel of grace that can stand against the wolves who will surely arise among them. I don't feel like the wind is more than it is normally. I have no idea if this is its just a, a, a stronger mic. You want to grab that other mic? Yeah, yeah let's set that up. Paul's antidote to this is elders who are equipped to guard the flock, the people of God. I'm going to wait for this to go over and then replace the microphone. I think if I just clicked it down, hold on, let's try this. It's got the... Zero? Oh no. It's it wasn't on zero, it was on mic. You think it worked? I don't know. That's right. I'm sorry, bro. No. Let's see if this is any better. We still plugged in? Right. Elders who equipped with the gospel of grace. Today I'm going to talk about just the first few things that he mentions here, and then next week we're going to finish out the discussion. I want you to notice three particular things that he begins with. The first one that is in verse 21, he speaks of repentance and faith. The two-sided response to the gospel that's required, one with the other, never apart. The second thing that he mentions in particular is in verse 28, he says that we would pay close attention to the whole counsel of God. Sorry, at the end of 27, the whole counsel of God and what that whole counsel of God is. And then third, we'll look at the, uh, the motives of the wolves, the false teachers that come in and how you can identify the true teachers. Let's begin with the uh, repentance and faith. There's no way to separate out the whole counsel of God from repentance and faith, so we need to dip our toes into what Paul means when he says the whole counsel of God. On the one hand, it means that all of the scriptures point to the central work of Christ. And we always have to bear in mind that Jesus came to fulfill the scriptures. And he says, I didn't come to remove 
a dot or an iota of the, the scriptures, in particular the Old Testament scriptures. And we need to remember that the Apostle Paul spent his three years teaching the, the people of Ephesus and all of the apostolic ministry to understand the whole counsel of God. And there is a streak in the church today that wants to cherry pick the passages of the Bible that sound good and avoid the more difficult passages. And as we're about to go out to different churches, this is a, an instruction, a, a, a warning to each of us that if you find yourself in a church that won't preach the full counsel of God, all of the scriptures, and deal with the difficult passages along with the seemingly comforting passages, then they're preaching a false gospel. It doesn't mean we belabor them and sit, hang out there all the time, but it's a willingness to understand that God is bigger than us and the things that we understand about who God is, who we are, are limited in scope and we have to be willing, humble enough to realize that God is going to say things, teach us things that stretch us. Many people will say that salvation comes, the truth uh, of life, the, the experience of life comes through faith. Faith is important. Universally, people will say you have to have faith. Where the differences come is the object of that faith. What do we have faith in? Is it a faith in ourselves, our own ability, our own dreams, our own imaginations? Is it a faith in some kind of teaching that's out there? The teaching oftentimes is their teaching, a certain mindset, an approach to life. Of course, the faith that God calls us to is a faith in Him, a trust in Him and His Word and His work on our behalf. And the challenge of the full counsel of God expands into this. It's a faith that's always accompanied by something else, and that is repentance. The two go hand in hand. They're two sides of the same coin. And the good news that's received by faith that God has won our salvation by the blood of Jesus is accompanied by the bad news, and that is that we are saved from something. We're saved from the death that has come from our sin, the bad news of the gospel. And we can say that the bad news of the gospel is that each of us are dead in our own trespasses. That we are unable to save ourselves. That repentance is necessary in order to truly believe. We have to have a turning away from the old self in order to turn to God. It's an acknowledgement that we are dependent and that we are wrong. Now this has ultimate significance in our relationship with God, that we have to repent of our sins and turn to God. But it also has great application, amazing application in all of our lives and in all relationships. And the principal relationship that this applies to is the marriage relationship because it's the most intimate relationship, second only to God. But in all kinds of family relationships and even friendships and, and work relationships, the key element to a healthy relationship is a willingness to admit our wrong when we're wrong. 
the elders. Paul speaks about, Jesus speaks about the elders being given the keys to the kingdom, able to bind and loose certain things. Repentance is a key to relational health. The world's philosophy is to say never apologize. Never explain, never apologize. Maybe some of you have heard this. It carries uh, an appearance of wisdom, an appearance of strength, of courage, a brevity of confidence. I've practiced it at times. It seems to even have an effectiveness. People follow it. The mark of one of Jesus' elders, his leaders in his church, is a willingness to repent. A willingness to admit weakness. Paul, in this passage, talks about all the things he's done right, or a number of the things he's done right. He shows that he's been faithful in proclaiming the word to them, that he's not sought selfish gain. He even worked as a tent maker in the city of Ephesus for these three years so that he could not be accused of ministering the gospel as one peddling something for selfish gain. Paul shows them the sincerity of his heart, but yet in other parts of Scripture, Paul points out that he's the chief of all sinners. The one most in need of God's grace one who has a thorn in his own life, a weakness, whether it be in his presentation, uh, his, his speaking ability, or his, his elocution, or, or, or maybe even in some sin that he just can't break, a thorn that he describes that he asked God to remove from himself, uh, him three times and God wouldn't do it. I come to this passage humbly because... In some ways, I hope that I have been faithful to do what Paul has done in my 12 years here in San Diego, but in many ways, I know that I've failed and been fearful of provisions and not been as faithful as the Apostle Paul was. Singer Rich Mullins is one of my favorite singers. He was one who knew his own sin, and he he talks about the Apostles. He says, I don't stack up too well against them, I guess. But when we lead with a spirit of repentance, acknowledgement of our own failings, we will be in a position where as elders and leaders we can care for the flock of God. And this charge toward repentance in faith is not just to those who are part of the sheep, but especially to those who are shepherds. And I want to impress on all of you, part of the reason I want to preach this message both this week and next week is to call you, call you to consider seriously the role of elder and even expand that out to various leadership positions in Jesus's church. Elsewhere, Paul says it's an honorable goal to aspire to the office of elder. 
Many of us, for right reasons, humility and understanding our own sin will shy away from those positions of responsibility, fearful that we would bring condemnation on ourselves because we're not worthy of the office. Others will aspire to the office for false motives, wanting to have selfish gain or glory bestowed upon them. All of our motives are mixed in some way in that way, and yet God calls broken people broken vessels into leadership positions in his church so that he can glorify his own name so that Jesus can be the one that we look to that his people look to for the fullness of God's promises to us aspire to that office of elder in the Presbyterian Church in in, uh, in America in our denomination we hold highly the authority of scripture and we we in doing so, we recognize that God over and over again calls men to serve as elders of the church, not in a way to diminish the value or the gifting that women have in the church. In many ways, the church has failed to acknowledge those gifts and appreciate those gifts and use those gifts of women. And so we need to humbly repent of those failings. But it's important also to note as we look at this office of elder and call of elder, that these men had other leaders, mature women, and even and other mature men who were not called to be elders, who were not named elders, who were active in the leadership of the church, shepherding the flock of God, teaching and admonishing other people. The roles of leadership in the church are diverse. And while the elders are called especially to make sure that the word is preached with good doctrine, that there's consistent ministry of prayer in the church, to engage in those things and make sure that the needs of the church uh, broader in terms of material needs aren't pulling the pastor and the elders away from this important work. All kinds of other roles and responsibilities of the church of teaching, of mentoring, of shepherding, of caring for the poor, of caring for those in need. Not all teachers are elders. And so when I speak of all of those in the church, I, I commend to you to pursue these leadership roles, not, not because of selfish ambition, but because God has equipped you, called you to be in his church and many of you to be leaders in the church it's interesting that twice in this passage paul speaks about spending three years in ephesus jesus was with his disciples for three years equipping them for the work of leadership and ministry over the last few years i've seen the importance of having a structured curriculum in the church and noted how even in the transient culture that is San Diego oftentimes people are here for two but oftentimes three years before being sent out and I've I've shaped my teaching and my thinking around this three-year cycle of teaching and a curriculum that can equip people to be knowledge knowledgeable about the doctrine of the faith to have a love for Jesus and his word to be able to actively employ the word of God, Jesus' work in our lives in loving and serving others, ministering the gospel of grace effectively to others, in developing the character of a Christian 
in seeing that our lives are called to be transformed, to be made new. And, and when Paul describes the qualifications of elder, you'll notice when you read through that in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus, an overwhelming number of those criteria for the office of elder have to do with the character of the men who are called far more than the particular giftings or abilities or financial resources. The three-year cycle is equipped to, to not just give us the head knowledge, but the heart, compassion, and passion to pursue the kingdom of God in active ministry. To know the whole counsel of God. Let's talk about the whole counsel of God for a few minutes here. The pastor, scholar, leader of the Gospel Coalition, or at least founder of the Gospel Coalition, D.A. Carson, describes the whole counsel of God using these words. Whatever else Paul did, he did not manage to go through every verse of the Old Testament line by line when he was teaching the people of Ephesus just wouldn't have had time. What he must have meant when he taught the burden of the whole of God's revelation, the balance of things, leaving nothing out that was of primary importance, never ducking the hard bits, helping believers to grasp the whole counsel of God that they themselves would become better equipped to read their Bibles intelligently, comprehensively. He summarizes it in these four points. He says, first, God's purpose is the history of redemption. Truths to be believed in a God to be be worshipped. In other words, understanding that God's redemption is not just a bunch of pithy sayings or wise ways to live life or even just one particular person explaining how everything works. It's a history of God working with his people that culminates in the work of Jesus Christ and unfolds for the rest of history in the expansion of his kingdom to all the nations. Second, he talks about an an unpacking of human origin. Using the categories of the fall and redemption and a destiny or a glory, a future, a worldview that shapes all of human understanding, a savior without whom there is no hope. Many of us came to faith through campus ministries that present some type of bridge illustration or the four spiritual laws that describe the human condition of sin and how we're separated from God in our sin. And there's no way to bridge this separation except through the saving work of Jesus who came to pay the penalty for our sin and to give us the righteousness we need in order to enter into God's presence. That cross, Jesus Christ forms the bridge that we need to be reconciled to God. But in our present day and age, there's something different from the time back in the 50s and 60s when a lot of these presentations were developed and so effective. In that time, most people had a general sense that they were failing in life, that they were not measuring up. 
there was still a culture, at least an American culture, of guilt and shame. Where people would pursue their freedoms, but then always have this sense that they're outside of the bounds. In many cultures, it still exists today, particularly in Asian cultures. But in the American context, in the freedom that we experience, the autonomy we experience in the Western context, the majority of people, particularly outside the church, but increasingly inside of the church, don't really have this general sense of not measuring up. And the response, the argument for the faith, the apologetic, the approach to most of this part of culture needs to go back a step further than just understanding that we're sinful. To preach the whole counsel of God is to go back to the origins, to the story of God's creation and the story of the fall. To engage the question, not just why are we messed up? Why are we sinners? Why am I not being able to, to do the things I want to do? But to engage the question, why is the world messed up? Why, why is there suffering in this world? Why are there unexplained sufferings? I get it when somebody does something wrong and they experience the consequences of it. But why... Why do these things happen to good people that have no particular reason why these things would happen to them? And, and to understand that question, we have to go back to the, the story of Genesis 1 through 3 and see how God created everything good. And then when he created human beings, he called them very good. And one of the things that he gave them was the ability, the freedom to choose the right from the wrong. And yet, miraculously, this isn't outside of God's sovereignty, but he made people who are not puppets. And in that beautiful creation, he also gave them the ability to choose the wrong. And in understanding this origin story of the choosing of the wrong, corruption, decay, and ultimately death entered into the world. A people who were made to live forever were cut short. Lives cut short. To understand the full counsel of God is to understand that the rest of the scripture from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 22 answers this central question of how God is fixing that problem. And it's a long story to read, but it's an engagement, a willingness to come and see that solution that begins that begins with a promise in Genesis 3 that says that your offspring, the serpent is going to bite his heel, but the, the offspring is going to crush the head of the serpent. That offspring is Jesus, and he brings others in behind him to bring this redemption. And the story doesn't end with Jesus just bringing good news, but the story ends and continues with a promise that all of creation will be restored in the death and decay and all these other things won't continue. Carson goes on to explain that the conduct expected of God's people is contained in the whole counsel of God. We talked about that the law of God is summarized by these simple words to love God and love one another. And in the scripture we find 
an explanation of how that love is supposed to work. And there are all kinds of competing ideas of how we should love one another. Just be accepting to one another. Don't be judgmental to one another. But of course, the irony in this is that as soon as, as, soon as you enter into that or don't do that, others become judgmental of you. There's no way to truly not be judgmental of one another. The Bible calls us to be rightly judging. To not put ourselves in the position of God in judging others. To not be hypocrites. It also presses in on our lives in uncomfortable ways to present an ethic that is far more than what the world expects of us. That expects not just right behavior, but right thoughts, motives, a changed heart. It presses in our lives in places we're uncomfortable with how we spend our money. Are we generous with others or are we hoarders? It presses into our sexual ethic and practices saying don't do these things because these things are taking, biting and devouring one another. It explains to us that there's no way to play around with sex because sex takes something from another and the only way to healthily engage in something so good that God has given us is within the context of marriage and it defines marriage as between a man and a woman. A monogamous marriage. A marriage that lasts for a lifetime. It's not entered into flippantly or left easily. It gives us even instructions on when those marriages might be dissolved, divorce appropriate. The whole counsel of God presses in on these difficult things, but it is the true avenue for life lived with joy and with hope and with love. The last thing D.A. Carson talks about in explaining the whole counsel of God is the pledges of transforming power both in this life and in the life to come. Promises to be trusted and hope to be anticipated. Many of us have come to a place in our life where we feel like we can't change much more. Our hope has by and large left us. We have become complacent, comfortable with certain sins in our lives because they are ways that we cope with the difficulties of life. To change seems beyond us, outside of our control, and that's exactly the point that God makes, is that we are incapable of changing so many things in our lives. We may be able to make some changes. We may be able to make massive changes by our own power, but the true heart changes, and the whole life transformation can only happen by the power of God at work in us, by the Holy Spirit being in our lives, and by us constantly looking with expectation that God will and does change our lives. And He changes that not by laying the guilt 
more and more on us, but by exposing our, our, our sin to us, by letting us see our sin more and more every day, oftentimes gradually, that we wouldn't be overwhelmed, and then applying His grace to that and saying, you are completely forgiven for that and freed to live a new life. The wolves were present in so many of the places that Jesus taught and also that the Apostle Paul took the gospel and all kinds of other people were taking the gospel. The wolves came in with selfish ambition, but one of the primary things that they brought in was an expectation that they laid on the people that they needed to do more in order for God to love them. In order for them to be identified with the family of God, to be accepted in God's presence, this is the central lie that has permeated the, uh, the, the people of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. That our acceptance with God is based first and primarily on our good works and what we're doing to keep our status in the kingdom and not based on God calling us and identifying us and loving us as his children, members, heirs of his promise. Paul talks about this in verse 32, where he says, to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Oftentimes we talk about sanctification as the ongoing work in the life of the believer. It's a helpful category that we use in our systematic theology that we are justified one point in time, made righteous, but that our sanctification goes on. But it's important to know and notice that in, at times in Scripture it talks about sanctification being point in time sanctification. You see, we have been made holy and promise this inheritance that we are heirs of promise, not based on what we have done, but based on what God has done. And the challenge for believers is constantly pressing into this great truth that we have been named heirs because God has called us. And the danger is that we act like the elder brother in the story of the prodigal son the elder brother did all the right things, but when the younger brother, who was the prodigal and ran off and wasted everything, he came back, the older brother couldn't extend grace because he saw the condition of his father's love based on what he did instead of who he was. He didn't recognize that when the younger brother came back, that his father was going to welcome him back and receive him because of who he was. And the wolves are constantly going to tell you, and this is so prevalent in so many churches, that you were called by God at one time, but now it's up to you to keep in the kingdom, to keep the status by what you do. And there is no more dangerous place to be than believing that lie. Because we will slowly begin to believe the lie and look to the things that we're doing right as the things that make God love us. 
And the gradual decline that happens is that we resent God when He doesn't give us what we think we deserve or what we want. We find that God is somehow unfaithful. We think He's being unfaithful. And we lose the first love. The love that God called us to that says, You have been called by me and nothing Nothing on earth can separate you from the love of God the Father. Not based on what you do, but based on what Jesus has done for you on the cross. The wolves will tell you that your status depends on that. The shepherds will tell you That Jesus' love is sure and steadfast whether you're at a high in your faith or a low point in your life. Whether your behavior is great or whether your behavior is awful. And that grace transforms our lives so that we can continue to live into that great truth. So that you and I can continue to live into that great truth more and more every day. You know, it's fascinating. The the illustration that is so helpful is that as we live the Christian life in truth, our sin goes from this to, to this. But our conviction of sin our awareness of sin, our heartfelt sorrow for the sin goes from this to this. It's an inverse relationship. Paul can identify this. He's, he's, he's doing so many things well, and yet his heart is convicted more and more. He realizes that he is a sinner in need of grace, even more today than he was yesterday. And that the gospel of grace is his only hope in life and in death. We'll continue this next week. There's so much in this passage. Well, let's pray now.